a gallon of gasoline was less than a dollar, it quickly became apparent that industry was going to suffer. My manager, one of the first meetings I had with him, he said, don't bother unpacking your boxes. You probably won't be here that long. How did you respond to that? It set the stage of saying, okay, you know, God, I, I don't know how long I'll have this job. I'm gonna work as hard as I can, but I'm also gonna hold even the fact that I've relocated my new family down all the way down to South Texas. I'm gonna hold that loosely as well. From Lex Mundy, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Huang, and joining us today is Brad Kellogg, now a director of consulting services in the healthcare industry. But his career path has been far from linear. In college, Brad knew he wanted to work outside the US, and his plan was to become an automotive engineer. So how did he become a healthcare consultant? which means Brad gets into the business side of building and managing healthcare facilities like hospitals. He'll tell us all about it on this episode. And as you listen to Brad's story, think about your own life and career, and maybe even think back to what types of things you were exposed to or what kinds of things you were good at doing growing up. For Brad, he grew up in the Pacific Northwest in a little town called Wenatchee in Washington state. He says he had a great childhood surrounded by mountains and grew up in a church-going family that ran a small business. My great-grandfather started an auto-wrecking yard, and then that expanded to become more of a car sales, car rental in our town. They had the franchise for the budget rent-a-car. My dad ran the family business. The business in the, I guess it would have been mid 80s, hit hard times. There was a, a bit of a recession in the US and uh, people were traveling less, renting cars less. At that point, actually, the, the business went bankrupt and, and my dad lost his job. How old were you around at that time? I was in middle school. You know, one of the things that I remember of that time was getting to be summer. My grandfather, who's very much a strong businessman, he came to me and said, well, what are you going to do with yourself this summer? And I said, well, you know, I'll probably hang out with my friends, play baseball, go to the park, ride bikes. And he said, well, that won't do. You know, you need to do something with your summer. And so he offered my best friend and I a interest-free loan for us to buy lawn mowing equipment. We started a business. It was called Lawn Care with Care, Your Helping Hand. And we had business cards and couldn't drive. You know, we were only in the sixth grade. So we had this sort of cart that hooked on the back of our bikes that you could put the lawnmower in and the trimmer and all of the supplies. And we pedaled around town all that summer. We had to learn how to do the books. We had to learn a little bit about marketing. And we learned the hard way that potential clients don't care how good your equipment is. They care more about you and how they can trust you and so you know we did a lot of trial and error and you start to understand some of the things of bookkeeping and accounting and paying back a loan and and putting in money for maintenance of your equipment even though you could take that out as profits and how much money do you remember making in a summer maybe close to a thousand dollars each that's a lot back then i bought a, a new mountain bike i bought other things that a, a teenage boy wants it was good money. I didn't manage my money very well back then. 
my business partner did very well and he was a saver. I was a spender and actually continued on that business through high school and passed the business on to my friend's uh, younger brother. That experience was a formative one for Brad. From a young age, Brad was into the business side of things. And another not so nice experience from his teenage years shaped Brad and the foundation of his faith. Something happened at church that he doesn't share the specific details about, but he's very open about how it made him feel. As things get hard, you can either lean away from God or you can lean into God. It was definitely a time of questioning. Is this faith something I want to pursue? And I think it was the first time, you know, I really did start to, to say, okay, God, are you real, not just in a distant sense, but are you real in a personal sense? And it was on a youth retreat that in tears and brokenness, just realizing that salvation was not just for my family, but I needed the saving work of Christ. It was no longer just my family's faith, but it was my faith and started to then pursue God on a daily basis. As you were able to see God help you through that, did that impact how you thought about college or your career? Faith was important to me. So I was looking at Christian colleges that had accredited engineering programs. Grove City College is a small Christian school in the western part of Pennsylvania. I went out for their engineering open house day. As I got there, there was a sense of peace of this is where I could see myself. I only applied to Grove City College and got accepted. It was in university where Brad met his wife, Amy, and where he says he had to figure out what he would really want to do with his career. As you get further along in university, starting to see, okay, God, what is the plan that you have? Where would you take me? Engineering is a tough discipline, but I always say when, when high schoolers ask me, you know, what, what should I do? You definitely can't go wrong with engineering. It's a good start. If you enjoy the maths and sciences and have some gifting in that, it can be a good basis. It could take you to lots of different paths, right? So what path were you thinking out of college? I had always had a love for cars. Part of that was growing up with a family that had a connection to some of the automotive business. So I was still very much wanting to become an automotive engineer for one of the big companies. But towards my junior year of college, started to feel a pull to work internationally. And I met a couple who were working in East Africa. There was a, a significant problem with correctable blindness. And they said, we're building an optical center and we really need someone that could come and, and assist us in that. Rather than taking the traditional internship for GE or one of the other firms that typically hires some engineering students, I spent the summer in Eritrea and, and I worked with the construction crew on some of the optical center design and taught mechanical drawing at the university. Coming back from Eritrea, I really felt that passion to work internationally at that point decided that I would only interview with companies that could take me overseas within three to five years. And how were you able to find your first job? It was a small school. I think we graduated 18 mechanical engineers my senior year, so it's not a big pond. Many of those large companies that are looking for engineers didn't come to campus to recruit. But 
one company did show up at Brad's recruitment fair. It was Schlumberger, an oil field services company with an international presence in over 100 countries. They had never come to our campus before, and as far as I know, they've never been back since. Surprisingly, it was the worst interview that I had. I left that interview thinking, oh man, I did poorly, but also offered it up to God and saying, God, I, you know, it, it's definitely not by my strength or my wisdom. And to my surprise, I got a second interview and, and they flew me down to Houston. It was one of those faith building time of really laying these things down and giving them up to God and trusting in his faithfulness. By the end of my senior year, I had a job offer with Schlumberger. What was it like working for an oil and gas company? Right after college, Amy and I got married on the 4th of July in 1998. We packed up our things and moved as, as newlyweds to South Texas. Working in the oil field was difficult. There was a significant downturn in the oil fields. The price of oil dropped to $12 a barrel. A gallon of gasoline was less than a dollar at that time. So it quickly became apparent that industry was going to suffer. My manager, one of the first meetings I had with him, he said, don't bother unpacking your boxes. You probably won't be here that long. How did you respond to that? It set the stage of saying, okay, you know, God, I, I don't know how long I'll, I'll have this job. I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to do my best, but I'm also going to hold even the fact that I've relocated my new family down all the way down to South Texas and have no roots here. I'm going to hold that loosely as well. So were you let go pretty quickly, like your manager said? Because I was a trainee, my salary was paid by the headquarters rather than our local district. I was actually seen as free labor. While the district was shrinking and engineers were being let go or transferred, I was able to retain my job. What type of things did you have to do as a trainee? It's really about finding out information about the oil well that's been drilled. And so we have different high-tech instruments that can tell all the different attributes of the rock or characteristics of the rock where the oil is or where you're hoping that the oil is. And so it really was a downhole survey of the, the rock formations. While the district was shrinking and engineers were being let go or transferred, I was able to retain my job and moved from being a trainee to being a field engineer. I was responsible for a crew of three people, a logging truck and a set of logging tools worth upwards of several million dollars. I was responsible for managing my crew for their performance. I was responsible for being able to complete the jobs that we did on the well sites. It was high stress and high responsibility, but it definitely helped me learn how to handle those difficult situations and high stress situations situations and also how to manage staff. Also managing people that are much older than you, you quite quickly have to learn what works, how do I motivate people, how do I help get the best out of them. Because you were sent from your headquarters, did that give you more supervisory ability or was it just in the nature of the job? That's the way their model works. Okay. They hire fresh field engineers and then the operators are those that assist field engineer on the well site. And these operators are probably there for many, many years good at doing what they're doing. But you coming in as an engineer, giving them technical analysis or advice on how to drill because you're an engineer. Yeah, that's their model. 
um, you're in a place where you don't really know if you're going to get gutted, but somehow you are able to survive. And then so what was next with Schlumberger? We got towards the end of three and a half years. Actually, I was on a short-term assignment working in France, and we were spending Christmas there. And, and over the Christmas holiday, I got an email that said, you're being transferred to Abu Dhabi to take effect on February 1st of 2002. Coming just after September 11th, there was a lot of fear about the Arab world. And what was it like walking into Abu Dhabi for you guys in the midst of that period? Our experience was feeling safe, feeling secure of having friends from all different nationalities. My boss was from Iraq and was one of the best bosses I've ever had. And really just being able to sort of break down those preconceived notions over that time, post 9-11, of what the region was portrayed as. How long did you guys stay not as long as we would have liked. We would have probably stayed, you know, three, four or five years. But after a year and a half, I made a promotion and then a transfer letter came. Brad and Amy actually began hearing rumors that they might be transferred shortly before the letter came. But they were thinking Qatar, Egypt or Indonesia, not Venezuela. Venezuela was not on our radar. Venezuela had just gone through the national strike to uh, protest Hugo Chavez. We were some of the first expats um, that were sent back in by Schlumberger. So it was a very difficult time. There was riots. Oftentimes we weren't able to go from the compound where our house was just across the street to the Schlumberger office. So uh, definitely a, a challenging time on many fronts. Because of the lack of security and, and safety, Schlumberger only had one approved taxi company that we could use, and that taxi company was oftentimes booked. So in, in some ways, it was like being um, sort of in house arrest. It was a challenge coming from Abu Dhabi with so much freedom and safety, and you, know, you could leave your car unlocked and nothing would happen to a place where there was a lot of violence and just a sense of lack of security. Venezuela was one of those low points. Because of that lack of ability to go out, really limited our interactions with other people. That desire that you had out of college to do your work outside of the U.S., that was great when you finally got to go to Abu Dhabi, but then when you were in Venezuela, how were you thinking about what situation you were in? Because it was a dangerous region, so there was a salary multiplier we were making more money than we've ever made. And to people on the outside, it looked very glamorous. We had a lot of vacation. The, the company paid for flights and those sorts of things. But it was a time where we really were calling out to God to say, OK, God, what do you have for us? Because there was a lack of peace. It put strain on our marriage. We had been trying to have kids and we had thought that, okay, now that Amy can't work in Venezuela, maybe this is an opportunity and maybe now will be the time where, where God will give us kids. And it didn't come and we struggled with infertility during that season. We also were struggling with the idea that we were going to be transferred every 18 months and, and you had no idea where that was because the oil industry was in need at that time. I think it was out of that brokenness of really just saying, okay, you know, God, whatever you have for us, we'll do whatever you have. 
Despite the fact that Brad had achieved his goal working internationally and was making more money than ever before, he and Amy were beginning to realize that peace and a paycheck are not always connected. Let's take a break, and then we'll hear where the Kelloggs went next on their search for a deeper sense of fulfillment. Hi guys, it's Grace. I hope you've enjoyed our stories that connects career with faith. I wanted to take this break to talk about Weave, a nonprofit based in Arkansas that's doing some work to help people see the bigger picture of God's story. Jen Lazala, the regional leader, is here to share a bit more about it. Weave specifically exists to help families see their role in God's big story. COVID has impacted all of our lives right now. A lot of us have been stuck at home and a lot of families have to be closer than they've ever been before. How do you think COVID has made what Weave does even more important? Parents are really busy and it's easy for them to just see the church as the primary discipler. And we've seen in this season, it seems a lot of parents have had more time at home with their families that they didn't have before. And that's probably, it comes with its difficulties, I'm sure, but it's also been a huge blessing. But from the parents that we've talked to, we feel that they're seeing that it's not impossible, that God has given them everything that they need to disciple their children. They can do this and that God can use them. Weave offers trainings and resources on how parents can interact with their kids to teach them about the big picture story of God. Here's an example of a fun activity you can find online. Well, let's just say that a family, you want to learn about a different people group living in South Asia. So there you would see a story of a little boy named Ahmed living in one of the largest cities in India. You'd hear what life is like for him. So you could read that story with your family. It also comes with a family activity of something fun you can do at home on a Saturday morning. And then there's also a recipe that comes along with it for mango ice cream. For more information, check out the resources for free at wefamily.org. We hope as we get into these stories about faith at work, you'd also be blessed by the big story of God's plan for you and your family. Welcome back. In the early 2000s, Brad and Amy were struggling with infertility and open to make some changes in their lives even if it meant Brad rethinking his career. Amy ended up flying back to the UAE for an operation to help with infertility. And during her recovery there, she ended up hearing about a youth director opening that she was interested in. Brad remembers being open to the idea of moving back to the UAE for Amy's job. So she applied and was accepted. And this was 2004. And we said, okay, God, if this is what you have for us, you know, I want to feel confident that I have a position as well. And so I sent my resume out to anybody and everybody in, in the UAE at that time. As we neared our deadline of having to commit to Amy's position, I got a call back from a hospital and they were saying, you know, we're expanding and we've got biomedical engineering department. And they asked, you know, do you have any experience in biomedical engineering? No. They said, are you willing to learn? And I, and I said, yes. And, and so I hired on with, with a hospital. You had mentioned you had no experience. So when they asked you about biomedical engineering, what were you thinking about what this was supposed to do? And then tell me about actually doing it. There was a lot of fear and trepidation changing industries like that, going from oil field to healthcare. That's a big leap. 
I could sense God's, I guess, almost sense of humor. As I got there and, and sort of got started, the realization that many of the same technique or instruments that are used in oil field and in exploration for oil have a very similar technology to healthcare. We use magnetic resonance in the oil field for determining the porosity of rocks. We use MRIs in healthcare for examining tissue in, in the body. Everything from gamma rays in oil field to x-rays in healthcare. There was a lot of overlapping, which was neat to see. But definitely going from one industry, which the oil field has its own jargon, it has all kinds of three-letter acronym that take a while to understand, to moving into healthcare, which has its own jargon and, and three-letter acronyms and, and abbreviations. And so it was definitely a very humbling time going in and, and being able to say, I, I really don't know, and, and being okay with that. During that time as well, the hospital had a vision to expand, and so there was an expansion project, and my engineering sort of skills and problem-solving ability helped me with that. I was working with the hospital through the design process, through the planning of the new hospital. And what's interesting about this hospital, it was called Oasis Hospital. Now it's called Kanan Hospital, named after the Christian missionaries, the Kennedys. Yeah. This hospital is probably one of the first hospitals in the UAE pre-oil boom. Yeah. It started in 1960. It started before the UAE was even a country. It was a very different time. I think when people think now about the UAE and Dubai, you think about the, the world's tallest building, glitz and the glamour. But during that time, 1960, it was a very difficult time. They had no money because they had no oil. There was no money from oil. It was very much a Bedouin lifestyle. The communities would go from oasis to oasis. It was a difficult time from a health perspective. This is 1960. The majority of the world was experiencing their baby boom. And the UAE, or Abu Dhabi in particular, had a declining population. Uh, one of the only places in the world at that time where the population was declining. And this wasn't by their choice because in like China, they are very strict one child policy. But th these are people from Muslim backgrounds and they really promote having lots of kids. Yeah. The population decline was fueled mostly by the infant mortality rate, which was 50 percent at that time, and the maternal mortality rate, which was 33 percent at that time. So one in three mothers dies in childbirth, one in two kids dies in childbirth. That was really the, the driver of the population decline. And so Sheikh Zayed, the founder of the UAE, had experienced medical care at the Mission Hospital in Bahrain and recognized and said, this is what my people need. We need access to this kind of care. And so he invited the Kennedys to come. He gave land and actually allowed them to set up a clinic in one of his buildings until they could build the hospital. And so you know, within a few years, the babies that were born at the hospital doubled the population. So significant access to modern healthcare at that time reduced the infant mortality rate, reduced the maternal mortality rate, and really it impacted the society. You joined in 2004, still decades later after the Kennedys left the hospital, but it still had this vision of caring for the people and making a difference. 
What was that like moving from a company like Schlumberger, a multinational, to moving to an institution that was really about helping people? to move from a large company, a great company, but really I felt like a small cog in a big machine that was generating value for, for shareholders, but not really being able to tangibly see how I was impacting that value. Moving into a caring industry, I can say, healthcare naturally feels very rewarding. And being able to feel that, you know, okay, yes, I'm not a doctor or a nurse, but my assisting and making sure that the, the equipment works well, making sure that things are safe for patients, that, that I could directly tie that to impacting people's lives. That was a change that I saw that, that really was a positive thing that I now even look for. I want to work for a company that I am aligned with the values and also that I can see that it's making a difference. Did it work out for you guys to have kids? Within six months of arriving, Amy was pregnant. Three years later, we had our second. You know, I found enjoyment, I found satisfaction, contentment. It was like the opposite of Venezuela. While in Venezuela, I was making more money than I'd ever made. The move to healthcare meant that I made less money than I'd ever made in my career. Like how much was it? Was like half of what you made, a fraction? It was about a third to a quarter of what I was making in, in Venezuela. Wow. So, yeah, it was a significant. And you were content and you were happy still. And, and yet there was contentment there. And, and wow. I think, you know, in Venezuela, there was a realization that money obviously is not everything. And money can provide maybe a short term satisfaction, but it doesn't provide that lasting contentment. Moving to healthcare and, and a new industry and new challenges. I was able to move up into facility management and safety and then ultimately served as the chief operating officer there for my last two years. And how big was this hospital when you joined and by the time you left? The hospital had tripled in size. From 2004 to 2014, the UAE had expanded significantly. The Emirate of Abu Dhabi introduced mandatory health insurance. That was in 2007. Almost overnight, our volumes doubled. I think we were probably close to 170, 200 staff in 2004. And, and when I left in 2014, it was a little more than 500 staff. Wow. Probably never imagined you'd be the COO. It just seems like the environment really allowed you to grow. But what in 2014 made you decide to leave? After 10 years, it was the right time. I had a desire to do some consulting. I, I thought, okay, maybe from with my background and maybe some of the, you know, the things that I've learned over the last decade in healthcare, maybe there's an opportunity for me to take that and, and be able to do something more in a, in a consulting role. I think one of the things that I saw was that challenge of saying, okay, rather than just maintaining the, the ongoing operations, there was some lure of the excitement of sort of having new projects and getting to solve new challenges and new problems. So Brad started applying to healthcare consulting jobs, but came up empty. If you haven't picked up on it by now, Brad's definitely a lifelong learner. So he decided to get an MBA to beef up his resume and skills. He got accepted into a program in Dubai, but then a phone call changed his plans. I got a call from Houston Methodist Global Healthcare Services. 
I had applied four months before and heard nothing and, and so started to work with them and, and was able to change my one-year full-time MBA to a, a two-year executive MBA program. As I graduated, you know, it was, it was another opportunity of saying, okay, you know, God, is this the, the company or is this the organization or do you have something else planned for me? And at that point, getting an opportunity uh, to, to move up and to move from sort of just a, a senior consultant into sort of the director of consulting, which has been a, a great opportunity to, to see new challenges. Brad has been with Houston Methodist Global Consulting for over six years, now working as a director who not just manages a team that handles projects, but also works on the development side of things to get new work from clients in the region. It's the last stop on a career journey that's been filled with a lot of unexpected twists and turns. In the last 20 years of it, Brad's seen a lot and perhaps leaves us with something to think about. I've seen that starting in a downturn, that was helpful to hold things loosely. And now, you know, with the, the coronavirus, I would say holding things loosely and, and trusting in the faithfulness of God. So I had one of my friends who challenged me. He wasn't a person of faith, but he challenged me and said, God has been faithful to you. And, and so what are you worried about? It was a shift in saying, okay, you know, God, we are going to trust in this next phase. When I look back, I think one of the things that helped me was just approaching every situation with humbleness, with a seeking to understand and questions. I really don't know what my career holds. I have very little aspirations or expectations or I'm not pursuing something or a promotion. You know, one of the things that I've been challenged with is to ask myself not where I want to be or what I want to be in the next five to 10 years, but who I want to become. That's more internal than external. And so really, who do I want to be as a man, as, as a father, as a husband, as, as a boss? You know, who do I want to become and really trying to pursue that? What types of questions are you asking yourself as you think about your career? Are you mostly focused on making external goals of where you want to be? What title or salary figure you want to reach? Or are you also thinking about internal goals of who you want to be? I hope you'll think about these types of questions no matter what stage of career you're in. And when you don't know the answers, ask God like Brad so often did. He'd ask, what do you have for me? And is this where you want me to be? I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Faith Collides. If you're looking for more inspiration about the intersection between faith and career, you can listen to more episodes of this podcast at faithcollides.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Grace Wong, bringing you stories that can revive your work week. Thanks for listening. Faith Collides is hosted by me. This episode is produced by me and Josh Batson, edited by Shina Lee, audio mixing by Joshua Huang. <laughs>